This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. here at the headquarters of Ohm Radio 96.3, and today I have the luxury of sitting down for a conversation with one of our own, my co-pilot and one of my dearest friends, John Duckworth. For those who've listened to some of our shows, you might have a feeling for who John is, and thus my hope for today's show is that we can broaden your understanding of the sheer depth of this individual, his thought process, his rigor, his passion, his curiosity, and his humanity. I personally met John about a decade ago at what I think he might describe as the fertile soil that enabled his metamorphosis. So I've had a wonderful opportunity to sit front row and witness the ability we all have, which is to change our story and to alter the arc of our narrative. John is an artist utilizing an array of different mediums, including photography, painting, film, and writing. But for me personally, he is an artist of the highest order, an artist in life. It is a real honor to have the opportunity to explore more deeply his life and calls to adventure, and I hope they inspire you as much as they have me. Welcome to the show. Thanks, buddy. That's pretty sweet. Speaking of inspiring, I want to get into a little of the music you're listening to, but last night mm. we, had, uh, we had an opportunity to listen to Mackenzie Eddy, uh, Elliot Smith, Very Benjamin Starr. Very hypnotic Star, soul band. Very hypnotic soul band at the Royal American. What a, what a great evening. Yeah, it really was. I'm still kind of riding that wave of, of energy, that it, and that's really all I can describe about the evening was just the energy was perfect. You know, it was a full moon. There was a great vibe, a great crowd, and 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 really inspiring. I love when that happens. Yeah, I did yeah. too. Yeah, they I crushed it. They nailed it. They did yeah. on, on so many different levels, and it was, uh, you know, I know they're deeply inspired by Prince, uh, and I'm sure yeah. uh, it's with heavy hearts that they uh, got on stage last night, but. They certainly rocked it out. Yeah, and Benjamin was commenting on how, how the timing worked out really well as far as they, their love for Prince and their ability to go on and actually perform the music, which is what they loved about Prince, right. and, and to be able to do that in honor of him. So it, you could feel that, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of music, uh, what's, uh, what's occupying your ears these days? I listen to so many different things, but uh, uh, Bays, my son, of course, is obsessed with Kings of Leon, so they're on all the time, and, and, and I love them. Just Speaking gonna, of Bays, he's learning uh, Stairway to Heaven. He is playing Stairway to Heaven <laughs> right nice. now. And, he's 10 and, and for the audience. 11. 11. But uh, his guitar teacher, Eddie Bush, who's incredible, great guy, also was really kind of forlorn this morning because of Prince's passing, because it was his greatest inspiration ever, um, told me that Bays in his practice yesterday is crushing it. And I was like, oh, it's so good to hear. Like, cause there's a moment where it starts to click yeah. outside of your mind and you feel it, you know, and that feeling state is, is something that's hard to, uh, 
it's hard to drop into um, until you've actually felt it. And then you go, oh, man, that's a different place outside of my mind. Yeah. But, yeah. He, he was saying, I don't know the technical terms, but that he was playing it too fast. Like he got yeah. into that well, difficult he's, section. Well, he's learning the guitar solo right now, which is pretty intricate. Anybody right. who knows Stairway to Heaven, the guitar solo is pretty, pretty challenging. And, and that Baze's tempo was actually faster than it's, it's played during the song, which, uh, which is pretty impressive to hear because right. it's a really fast guitar piece. Another uh, artist that uh, you're listening to, Avi Jacob. Yeah, uh, he's become a good friend of mine. Yeah. He's been crashing at my house for a little while now. And he's, he's a uh, folk artist, singer-songwriter, really unique, interesting guy. And, and, and you know, if you get a chance, you can go online, uh, uh, SoundCloud, uh, check out Cannonball or Pickup Truck. He's got some great songs. Yeah. I, uh, I love the way you laid out the conversation for today, which, you know... Uh, falls under Call to Adventure, the title of our show, um, but, but you laid it out, sort of, uh, your first Call to Adventure, Behind the Curtain. Um, mm. I thought that was a wonderful way to start. Mm. Um, and in honor of Katie and Jim, your mother and father, who are staying here for, what, a month? Uh, over a month. Over yeah. a month. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're now, you know, my dad started to research uh, housing prices the other day. <laughs> That's a good sign. It's sort of an open-ended month. <laughs> well, she... Yeah, they're loving it. We she, are too. You, uh, you credit her with the introduction uh, to a gentleman by the name of David Bayes. Yeah, who my son is named after. Um, and it was really cool, you know. Uh, you know sometimes I, I find like this idea of a call to adventure is something that you sort of jump into willingly and, and intentionally. And this was something where my mom really was the one who, who pushed me into it. You know, she had a teacher at this college who she really loved, and she knew that that's my passion was to be an artist. And she asked him, David Bayes, if he needed any assistance in his studio. But at the time, were you in high school at the time? No, just after high school. Just yeah, after. I had just finished my first year in college at UC Davis, which was, you know, biological science and chemistry and physics and calculus and, uh, and art and keg stands. Right. <laughs> and, and, I, and I mastered in the latter, which was, uh, they don't give you a degree for, you know, like uh, keg stands or things like that. But I was really good. It's an inkling into what I think of is sort of uh, the duality and, or, or better said plurality of mm. you, John Duckworth. You know, when you think about the sciences and, and the physics and they, you, you don't put those with an artistic passion as well. What, when did the arts first become was, an inspiration? It's always been there, you know, and, and, and both have always been there. I suppose, you know, it's sort of the blessing and, and potentially the challenge of me figuring out who I am is, is very strong, you know, right brain, left brain, both sides. Um, and I think that they complement each other really nicely. But, you know, in, in regards to going to UC Davis, there was a time, actually for quite a number of years, where I held this idea that I needed to find something consistent, like a day job, some way that was that would I, like a backup plan for the art. I really always knew and wanted to be an artist, but uh, I, was, I was consistently told by well-meaning people that this was not going to be easy. You know, so I was going to school on a pre-med veterinary science thing to so be a veterinarian, and then I realized, man, you know, two things. One, I really just want to do the artwork, and two, I like animals, but I like them healthy, you know? Right. <laughs> and it was really hard for me emotionally to even think about that. Um, and I've done that many times throughout, throughout my life, up until the point I finally let go of it all, but uh, pursued a backup plan. You, you described your experience. You said, I, I saw intimately firsthand the life of a man who truly lived it like work of art, the whole thing. Walk us through what that means. 
I had been to art shows. I had read about artists in books. I had met artists before. But going to his house and getting an inside look into, into his day-to-day was just revealed to me how enmeshed it was, how, how there was no separation between his personal life and his work and his business and everything else. It was all just his life. And for, you know, every bit of it was informative, not just the things he was painting, which I was really inspired by. A very talented painter, and I really loved it. But, but then, you know, just the way he went through his day-to-day, the way he uh, created his stretcher bars and stretched his own canvas and got the, the raw lumber from the lumber store before doing that. And then we would break for lunch, and he would very thoughtfully uh, uh, make a sandwich, you know, an open-faced tuna salad sandwich with capers and, and melted cheese and tomatoes and basil and things that I hadn't really been doing. And he's doing this for me, this, this young assistant, and sitting down and having a conversation with me as his equal in, in some regards. That let me in behind the curtain, kind of like, it reminds me of that analogy for me is The Wizard of Oz, you know, where, right. where there was this magic associated with what it is to be a working artist, and it, it dispelled that magic for me and, and, and made me realize it's just consistency and determination and some discipline and desire and a willingness to do whatever it takes to make it happen and also to, to allow it to, to design your life because you're going to do it for yourself, you're not working for anybody else. Add in all the things that you find really serve you well. Well, it seemed to broaden my understanding of like art. It wasn't the medium or the tools yeah. or the technique. It was that he approached that... Uh, 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 he, he approached his world as an art form, you know, life as an art form. Uh, yeah, and every step, yeah. every step along the way, you know, was very thoughtfully considered. And, and, and that, was, that was really, really inspiring. And the ripples from that encounter, which was only a few years, are still here today. I mean, obviously, my son is named after him. But right. beyond that, just the, the things in me that I, that I realize on a regular basis, even just preparing to talk to you about this, I look at my arrangement in my studio and really, it's like, a, it's like a mirror for his studio 25 years ago. And I never really even considered it that clearly until having to write this down. Share with us one of your favorite quotes, one of my new favorite quotes by Thoreau uh, that, oh, I, sure. that I think so beautifully sort of articulates. All right, I'll read it for you. Um, so Thoreau says, I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and so to make a few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of arts. And for me, that was, that's like a, thinking about ourselves, our individual unique person as a work of art, which, which means it's never, and, and as a work of art that's never done, it's always, always in progress. Yeah, it reminds me, because oftentimes when I'll try to describe you to somebody, like John Duckworth, he's a good, really good friend of mine, he's an artist, he, I was like, you know, but artist just seems too small a description, you know? I mean, if he was a scientist, he would have been excellent. If he was a coach, he would have been excellent. If he was a politician, I just think whatever you set out to do, you would have achieved the best in, your, in that form. Mm. And, and it made me think about, like, all of those are pretty small little labels, you know? And you seem to have taken all those little labels and put them in a big, you know, pile and just called it life, 
mm. and I'm and I'm gonna seek mm. to be excellent at life. Um, that 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 takes a lot of intention and rigor. Yeah, I suppose I think some of it's born out of confusion. You know, I I do feel like and and thank you for saying that, uh, but that I had the option and the potential to do so many different things. And that, and that was also slightly confusing. Which way do I go? You know, it kind of comes back around to this, my meditation practice, which is, which is really just getting to know myself more deeply. And, and there's a part, there's an aspect of mind that just wants to know, that wants answers. And, and that's a really healthy aspect of mind in, until it can be limiting in the sense that there are certain things that the mind can't really know that you have to feel deeper than that, uh, than the ordinary mind state. And so it took a while for me to let go of just wanting to know what it was all about and just say, it can, it can be about anything and everything and all of it all at once, which again, can be a bit overwhelming, I suppose. I, um, remember, I remember thinking back at that age and I would describe it as like both liberating. You have yeah. unlimited opportunities and terrifying at the right. same time <laughs> right, right, because totally. you have unlimited opportunities. Totally. Yeah. What advice would you give your 20 year old self? Oh boy, what advice? Um, well, I suppose you know there's an aspect of really paying attention to the moments when uh, there. I, I it's referred to often as like the small, quiet inner voice, getting quiet enough to hear that voice and trusting it. And and I have a, I had a tendency at that age to want to complete things in sort of a perfectionist way. So I begin down a path and think man, I've committed to this. And part of that, I think, is healthy. You know, you should finish that. For instance, a fire science degree that I got and, and knew going into it partway through, I'm not going to use this. But I was like, I'm committed. I'm going to do this. And so I did it, got a job as a fireman for like six months and was like, okay, I've done it. I'm done. So just letting go of those things quicker, I think probably would have been easier. Um, but, you know, of course who I am now, I'm, I'm really happy with. It's interesting. We'll get into that conversation uh, later in, in, the, in the segment. But, um, you know, the commitment and the letting go seem to uh. be like it's and or. And I think, uh. you know, maybe like Ken Wilbur said, what did he say? Uh, transcend and include or yeah. both, you know. And, and you at this point in your life um, haven't abandoned commitment. No. But you're not limited by it. It's talked about in the Bhagavad Gita where they talk about uh, uh, you can be committed to your actions, but you have to let go of the fruits of your actions. So there's this idea that I think that, you know, maybe it can be felt or sensed as being apathetic, you know, uh, but, but letting go isn't apathetic. It's actually really open and liberating and beautiful and, and, and intentional in such a way that is deeply caring rather than there's, no, there's not a lack of caring there, but it's committed to choosing some direction to head in, but then being really open to anything that comes along along the way, which to me, I just started to find more exciting. Like, wow, what, what, what sort of surprise might be coming up around the bend that, that, that I don't even know about? And if I have my blinders on, firmly committed that point A leads to point D, I may miss a few points along the way that lead to a whole new path that could be really fascinating. You talked about early in your 20s working in advertising design and and feeling really uh, intimately linked to a system of consumerism that you felt a distaste for. Mm. Um, 
w when did your sort of reaction to consumption and consumerism start to take shape? Right about then, right. when I was working, like sort of, probably probably again behind the curtain might might describe that as well. You know, I, I was creating advertising and marketing and doing commercial photography and and corporate identity and logo and things like that and and it was really uh instrumental in my creative process because it allowed me to learn how to uh guide the visual program between color and form and composition and you know it was a great insight in that way but i felt like i was uh designing things that were encouraging people to buy things they didn't need and that to me just didn't feel inspiring. And so there was a point at which it just, you know, the, the energy was, was sucked out of the process. And I, and I fought with it for a little while. There was definitely a lot of tension there for me because it was a stable source of income going right. back to this sort of day job, dependable backup plan thing. And, right. it, and it was, as far, from a financial standpoint, it was working. Yeah, and in typical form, for those who know you well, you set out to... Uh, say, well, this isn't what I want to do. I want to jump in a different direction, but I'm not going to jump in that direction until I create enough of an income stream to match the income stream I'm generating from this work that I'm really not inspired by. Yeah. Um, you know, typical, logical, linear way to go about doing that, a very thoughtful, reasonable. Um, ultimately, you got close, but you never quite made it. And, no. yet, and yet you still decided, I got to jump. I got to go. Yeah, it finally occurred to me that it was irrelevant whether the artwork started to make as much money as the other thing. I just needed to stop doing the other thing because it wasn't fulfilling me at all. It was an incredibly liberating experience to go to all of my design clients and say, here's a bunch of CDs with everything I've ever done. You keep these. I'm deleting everything off my computer. <laughs> I'm done. The beginning of your shedding. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so curiously, as soon as I did that, and for me it was such a great lesson in letting go, as soon as I did that, my artwork started to take off and sell in ways that... Um, and sales isn't the end-all, be-all, but... It was directly correlated to me letting go my artwork as a career uh, took off. Well, yeah, it goes back to that saying, I think you, you, you have to close one door before yeah. another can open, right? A certain clarity of energy and focus yeah. uh, allows for things to happen because you're, you're not distracted by other things. Before we cut to uh, one of your first favorite tunes, um, share with us your, your favorite quote, one of your favorite quotes by Ray Bradbury because it sort of it's, it summarizes that... Thought yeah, really, sure. really beautifully. Uh, I, I, for me, it's, it sort of summarizes this show too, yeah. which is, uh, he said, sometimes you have to jump off the cliff first and grow your wings on the way down. Scary as hell. Yeah, yeah, it can be until you do it a few times and realize that that, that the unknown is is potentially a really beautiful place to jump into. Tom Waits in San Diego Serenade is going to be our first tune. Can Sweet. you uh, give us a little intro into, in, into this uh, track? Yeah, well, Tom Waits is a San Diego guy, and, and this is from an album in the Heart of, in the Heart of Saturday Night. Um, and I remember listening to this song in particular, San Diego Serenade, sitting in my car, my Nissan pickup, um, days before leaving San Diego, not knowing I was leaving for a 22-year you know, trip right <laughs> you were gonna say round trip but just yeah, trip yeah yeah uh, he's 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 a bit of a legend in san diego and 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 i love his music well we hope you enjoy tom waits san diego serenade mm -hmm. 
about now Never saw the sunshine Till you turned out the light I never saw my hometown Until I stayed away too long I never heard the melody Until I needed the Back, we're at Ohm Radio. My name's Alexopoulos. I have with us uh, my co-pilot, John Duckworth, and uh, today we're spending a little time uh, walking through his calls to adventure. And the second one you talk about is uh, you label sort of transformation. Um, and I think it a good dovetail into that conversation is about the uh, qualities you admire most in others. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Um, I, I suppose I. I really do admire those who, who have the courage to express themselves fully and, and authentically. And, and I suppose in order to clarify that, it takes a bit of digging to really understand who you are. And so I really appreciate it when people go out of their way to do that, to, to ask questions about why they think what they think, why they say what they say, why they do what they do. And, and, it, and it's, it's, not, it's not often that everybody does that because we're habituated in this way. 
um, to, to do things, and, and it's easy to not question them. And it's really interesting what happens when you just start looking a little deeper. Why do I do that? Why do I act this way or say this thing or do this thing? And um, I, really, I really respect that because I find that, that people tend to be more open because of it and more compassionate. And also they tend to just be so interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a frightening uh, journey. Um, and uh, at times it, it can lead to tremendous openness and in, in, uh, a newfound understanding. And it could also come with lots of casualties, you know, uh, yeah. when you really analyze the, the honesty of who you are and where you are and what you're doing. And, and one of the casualties of that, the beginnings of that transformation was your marriage. Mm, yeah. uh, you said, I left my marriage in what I considered a somewhat unexpected and abrupt way. It caught me off guard and I found myself in a very strange land. Mm. Um, walk through that a little bit. Um, w- 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 describe that land. I suppose the best way to describe it was this sort of uh, letting go of my my conception of what life was, of what life held, and not really doing that intentionally. Actually, it was just it was really a shattering of that, and and the shattering of that conception uh, it felt really unstable because I had had no had no no. Um, recognition of where I was or really who I was it, it, everything kind of broke down simultaneously and it happened pretty quickly you know and there was and then shortly thereafter I was in a sort of a um, an emotional uh, physical and mental uh, low point uh, really really um, uh, scared and sad and and, uh, and and angry and and you know all kinds of uh, just in a terrible place you know one of our one of my favorite Poets David White, who who mm. you've had a chance to listen to and see, yeah. uh, when I asked him a question about you know, are are transitions inherently ripe with conflict? Huh. You know, could could they be smoother? And he gave me that Scottish chuckle and sort of laughed at my <laughs> the naivete of my question. Um, well, you know, but but looking back, because you sh- it shattered yeah. your marriage um, uh, as a sort of metaphor. Yeah. Um, was that the only way it could have happened? No, I don't think so. Well, yeah. okay, so it's the only way it could have happened because it's the way it happens. Right. But in response to David White and your question there, I do find that there's a, there's a tendency to think that uh, transformation is born out of crisis, and that's the only way that that happens. And and I don't I don't I don't believe that. I do believe that crisis and great tragedy and really difficult things can be a great sort of a spark to allow transformation to happen, to allow it to enter in, because it's necessary to break down your conceptions of what's happening. But I, I don't think it's necessary entirely. I mean, uh, uh, a really good relationship can, can tra- be transformative, and that can be very beautiful and loving. And, and, so, and also, something that can be incredibly challenging, um, if you're aware to the fact that this has the potential for a transformative quality, can someone can be sort of stable and grounded even through that because they know you know we know that there's something beautiful that happens within that space um so it doesn't i don't think it always has to happen but but so often it does and i think that the reason why it happens that way is because uh, uh we get as i was at that moment really scared 
and, and that fear creates that tension and conflict. And, and so, I mean, I suppose hopefully, you know, and I, I think that I'm uh, better at, at adapting to that, that place where the fear comes and I, and I don't resist it as much. Right. I mean, you've talked about actually shining a light on where it, where it is and actually moving yeah. towards it rather than moving away from it, which is obviously just an evolved way of thinking about that issue. Um, I love the way you talk about sort of the breakdown before the breakthrough. Uh, uh, and, and you said, uh, I thought, yes, I'm in the right place. I'm totally flattened, nowhere else to go but up. And the beauty is that now I can transform myself on the way out of this in any way I'd like. And this began the big experiment in my true introduction to mindfulness. Mm. I want to talk a lot about that because that's okay. just such a beautiful way to, to think about, you know, when you're down and the opportunities it creates. But I don't want to not talk about the other side of that, which is just the utter despair of being flattened. Um, you know, what, what, what you talked about, like literally going up and crying. Yeah, maybe a couple times a week. Yeah, for a while, you know, and, and every time I, I would um, drop my son off back with, with, with his mother, uh, it was in incredibly difficult. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, conditioning <coughs> involved there. Of course, uh, uh, guilt and remorse about decisions that were made and, and, and the way things went down. And, and, um, um, and then also just feeling alone and, and, and uncertain about where I was. I did keep myself occupied, uh, uh, really busy at work, creating things and, and renovating the studio. And that, that actually was very helpful. Um, but then there, you know, as soon as I would pause for a moment, um, all of it would come rushing in, you know, and, uh, sometimes it was anger. And I know now that, that, that beneath anger is always sadness. And, and so it would always end up in sadness and I just needed to feel it. And, and, and so, you know, growing up, uh, I wasn't one to, to readily cry. And, and I remember thinking at that moment, well, okay, like, like this really kind of sucks, but I just need to go through it uh, rather than push it back down. It needs to come out. And, and, and so I just, you know, went with it, but it, it was you know, incredibly challenging. I'm always interested to hear how many uh, individuals, one of our dear friends, Benji Towell, who spoke about depression and, and want, when, when he feels that he's in what, whatever that state is, he, he needs to put something out on the horizon to shoot for. I was listening mm. to a podcast with Debbie Millman, who, uh, uh, airs a show design matters. And she was talking to Krista Tippett on being both of whom had suffered and maybe do depression and, and great mm. despair. What, for those out there who might be listening, who might be in a place similar to that, what what would be the tools that you'd um, that you'd uh, advise to sort of consider? Uh, boy, you know, there, there's a guy Victor Frankel who wrote a book called uh, "Man's Search for Meaning," and 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 that book was really instrumental to me. It's just sort of this idea of of finding a, a will to live. And it can be, it can come in a lot of different uh, facets, a lot of different ways. For me, honestly, in thinking about it right now, it's definitely my son was, was, was what I realized. And it's sort of this, this idea of, of something larger than myself. Right. Um, and, and, and with, with, with Bayes in particular, I, I knew that he was modeling himself after me. And so to hold myself accountable for living authentically, for asking the questions about, you know, grooves and patterns and conditioning that I may or may not want to retain or let go of. Um, and that, that became 
really informative for me. And, and he became uh, my greatest teacher. You took a, a microscope to a lot of uh, personal behaviors, mm. addictions, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and what I find so inspiring uh, about you is not only did you identify what they were, you removed them. You, you, you extracted them. <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about that process. Well, I have to say, um, that pain can be a good motivator. And, and, I, and I was trying to figure out what, what the root causes of that were. And so I just really started to look... And in process of isolation, I love referring to this, you know, I talked about the big experiment, you know, I like referring to myself as both the, the, the scientist and the subject, you know, the researcher and the, and, and the subject and all of it wrapped up in one and, and, and looking and analyzing, but also doing. So, okay, I, I love, you know, Pema Chodron once said that if, if you don't like what's happening, the way that you're reacting to something, or you don't like the way that you behave in a certain situation, you don't really need to figure out what to do. You just need to do something different. It right. can be anything different. And that will potentially break the cycle. And for me, I started just doing things differently and then noticing the result. Very simply, not holding on to anything. Just like, what if I uh, uh, never touched nicotine again? And very quickly, I knew, oh, that's really healthy for me. Right. <laughs> and, you know, uh, little things like, you know, coffee and caffeine. Um, Stopped that. Changed my diet drastically with, you know, gluten. That was a problem. Um, and then there were bigger things about patterns that I noticed about uh, tendency to get angry um, for, for, and, and to hold on to that state longer than was necessary. Uh, and, and that was a relationship with, with Baze that was, that was really helpful. I would get angry at him when he was two. And then I would have this moment two hours later of like, that was really ridiculous. You know, I'm, that, why did I get that angry? And so I started running these experiments with him. You know, when I get angry, I'd say, hey, Baze, daddy needs a timeout. And he would look at me funny and say, yeah, dude, just go do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. And we'll revisit this conversation in 10 minutes. And, and I would come back. And of course, he was totally fine. Right. He never was not fine. <laughs> no, I remember all those experiments because you'd run them like on a spreadsheet. You know, I'm going I'm to typical John. I don't right? do that anymore. No, I know, which is, a, which is a great segue into like, uh, but, but you would, you know, when you're looking at your diet or your, your, yeah. your, uh, well, I think we're habitual animals. Yeah. And, and, and at least for me, I'm, my, you were my, examining the habits. My memory it, tends to be pretty short. Yeah. And so I could pull myself out of a groove, but then I would easily fall back into it without even realizing it. So I had to write it down down and really be conscious to it to be able to say oh yeah and then once you know i could see clearly that it was unhealthy and that was the main thing is this healthy or unhealthy behavior that i'm engaging in and once i could see it was unhealthy that made it really clear to me just drop it you know and, and i suppose it sounds i'm making it sound easy but it was really challenging um, um, but once I, that was my thing. Once I could identify it as unhealthy, I would say, okay, I'm going to let this go and then run, run that experiment. What happens when I let that go? And if the results came back as in, ah, oh, I f feel better, I'm lighter, I'm more open or, or whatever, so oh, this, is, this is worthwhile to keep it gone. It was, it was during this period that you pivot in some of the literature that you're reading, uh, you pivot mm -hmm. sort of towards the East. Um, those contemplative traditions, meditation, yoga, uh, spiritual thinkers like Alan Watts, uh, Krishnamurti, who uh, you just spent a week with, right? Oh, I spent a week with Adyashanti. Uh, Adyashanti. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Krishnamurti definitely led me to Adyashanti. Adyashanti, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, t talk a little bit about th those uh, wisdom teachings and, and sort of your exploration in that direction. 
Well, yeah, I, I can thank uh, uh, Kelly Jean, Kelly Jean Moore from Mission Yoga for, for introducing me to a lot of this. And, and, and it was, timing is everything. I was, I was of course, ripe for, for, the, for the information. And so I soaked in it, you know, just, just and really loved it. And you know, a lot it of it has letting to go. You know, a lot of it has to do with understanding the essential nature of, of, of your mind, the essential nature of reality, and, and really looking deeply beyond um, the things that change. The three big ones are thoughts, our physical sensations and our emotions. And we tend to identify with those as, a, as an ego, as those being us. But beyond those things, and for me, that, that's what my meditation practice became and still continues to be to this day, to watch those things that change and, and, and understand that A, they're not me, because if they were, they would remain, they wouldn't fluctuate so often. And, and B, there's, there's something beyond that, beneath that, deeper inside of me, that is unchanging. It doesn't ebb and flow. It doesn't rise and fall. It's always there. It's always sort of present. And um, to me, that's what these teachings, first time I ever meditated, I felt really comfortable and I felt like, I've described it as I felt like I came home, uh, which is really, uh, it was a really great feeling. It's not that uh, comfortable for most people though. So I feel really fortunate. And, and and this sort of uh, spiritual awakening or uh, journey filtered in as it does in your life into your creative process, um, and ultimately what what became a seven year journey towards your you know critically acclaimed uh, exhibit Awake, which I believe was November of two thousand and fourteen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Gosh, time flies. I know. <laughs> two years away from it almost. Talk a little bit about sort of how that, um, you know, seeped into the creative process and how that changed for you. Well, for me, I suppose my art making, my creative process tends to mirror my uh, personal process of transformation and evolution or whatever you call it. You know, there's sort of creative unfolding that happens in each individual. And so this this investigating that I was doing with Eastern contemplative traditions just started to naturally find its way to seep into the artwork that I was making. And without really uh, setting up a grand scheme, a new series of work developed of its own accord. And, and then it started to make more and more sense as it went along. And it, was sort of, it, it, it eventually ended up encapsulating my own personal uh, transformation. In, in Western... Uh, culture that we live in. There's, there's this overwhelming um, bombardment of stimuli. And it's really challenging, I find, that to, to sort of filter that out, to filter through it, to even take it all in and process it. I think it results in this constant state of low-level anxiety or stress, and, and sometimes a high-level state of anxiety and stress. It's sort of omnipresent fight or flight, but it's not necessary because we're not actually in danger for our lives, but our ego is in danger, and so it feels like it, it, it activates that part of our brain, that reptilian part of our brain that makes you feel like you're in danger of your life. And for me, Eastern contemplative practices, meditation and sitting quietly and processing these things, just processed it out. It was sort of like emptying the vessel. And as I was emptying the vessel, um, it landed on my canvas. It not only landed on your ca canvas, it landed in your interpretation of what an exhibit should look, see, and feel like, right? I mean, that was a multidimensional experience 
not just a visual one. Yeah, I had become disenchanted with my involvement with whatever you want to call it, you know, the art world, the gallery scene, whatever it was. I, I was really, you know, pleased with what I was working on, but I wanted to do something very different, something that was experiential and something that engaged viewers in a way like a ballet or going to see an opera piece or going to bro a Broadway show does, where there's a very f a distinct beginning and end and people are present the whole way through. You turn off your phones and you're engaged. And I found that in a lot of art shows, whether it be my own or somebody else's, it's really just a big public social gathering where people are you know, drinking and, and talking and, and it's very hard. It, you know, if I'm gonna devote seven years of my life to presenting some work to somebody, I at least would love to set up the parameters so that they can engage with it in the way that I would hope they could engage with it. So I just wanted to increase the potential for people to get into what I was doing and experience it for good or bad. It wasn't like an ego thing, like you must love this. It was more like a, I just want you to be there in the way that respects the process I've gone. If you're going to bother to come, then shut everything down long enough to really feel it. Yeah. And for those who weren't able to, you know, witness that exhibit, um, you know, you walked into the first room and I think, you know, John on a platform in a meditation pose, uh, with an with imagery behind him, which was what a ten minute film. Yeah, about a twelve, twelve and a half minute with, with like video piece. Second yeah. slides, right? Just well, yeah, lots of it, it was it was microsecond. I can't remember how many. There are tons and tons. It was a few years worth of work, and 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 you know, hundreds and maybe thousands of of individual slides. The arc of the narrative of that twelve minute piece, in a very abstract way, follows Joseph Campbell's arc of the hero's journey and the monomyth. Mm. So it was the call to adventure. Uh, the crossing of the threshold, the initiation, the transformation, and the return. But I was trying to do it not in a hit-you-over-the-head way, but in a more abstract way. But I wanted to be there in the, in the space. And, and really, thankfully, it worked. I mean, because there was audio component, too. So it was really all-encompassing, you know, multi-sensory experience. And some people would say, man, I was really focused on you and the way that the, the, the video was, 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 was on you and around you, and that was, that was transfixed. I was really, I couldn't stop looking there. And then there was other people who would say, after a few minutes, I didn't even realize you were in the room. Right. Um, so it was different for each person. And, but thankfully, I really think the audio component, um, and of course the, the component of me being there. So I meditated as part of that first room. There were eight rooms um, uh, for between two and five hours a day for a couple of months. And, and so I loved the idea of an exhibition also including my transformation in the midst of it. Because I knew that something interesting would come out of me meditating that frequently for that long of a period of time. I didn't know what was going to be on the other side. So I was kind of an active participant in an experiment while I was running an exhibition. Right. <laughs> which is fun. A little bit layered, which is beautiful. A little bit <laughs> you know, that was one of my questions in, in sort of concluding this segment of transformation is... You know, you put seven years I mean, of commitment into this exhibit. You yeah. know, it's, it's big um, yeah. in, in lots of ways. And sort of, I would think reasonably, there's an anticipation or expectation of what lies next. Mm -hmm. um, but during the process, you're meditating for three to five hours a day for literally like 30 to 45 days, right? And so I'm yeah. just wondering and we'll get into that maybe uh, after this next song but wondering how that uh 
practice changed your comfortability with what lie next and the state of ambiguity? Yeah, it, it, it definitely shifted things for me in a really curious way. I feel like it was, uh, the exhibition was the end of, of, a, of a journey. And I think I've described it as, as really the artwork was the byproduct of me going through this personal transformation. So I was, I was actually uh, surprised a little bit that at the end of the exhibition, which was my, my, in my thinking, this was, this was this thing that I was going to continue to do. And I really cared deeply about this process. And as soon as it was over, I didn't know I didn't care at all. Not in a, it's hard to describe. Not in an apathetic way. Not we talked about that earlier. Way, but it was, it was, it just didn't have, it was like it was behind me. You let and go I, of the outcome. I, well, I not only let go of the outcome, but I let go of that part of myself that did all that. It right. was like, now I was at a new chapter and it was really cool, like clean slate. Right. And, and I didn't need to bring that forward with me necessarily. And so it was really fun to actually, and liberating to say that could be the end. And right. it could be the beginning or it could be both. I don't know. And, and that's, I don't know, was the mind state that I then occupied for, for quite a while. I remember having that, <laughs> that conversation with you on a, a park bench uh, at <laughs> yeah. Olive Palms on a beautiful oh, day. Oh, I remember right? that. Yes, yeah. yes. That's right. Um, we're going yeah. to cut out of this segment uh, and uh, we're going to exit with uh, one of your son's favorite bands. Yes. One of mine, too.
is Kings of Leon, Manhattan, uh, circa for you, 2012, 13. You're up in Garrison. You're, uh, you're cycling yeah. uh, in a meaningful way. Like, what, how many miles a week? Oh, two to 300 miles, maybe 400 sometimes. And you're preparing for a good friend of ours, Stuart Young, uh, and his 50th birthday. Well, you know, I wasn't preparing for that yet. No. Okay. The, the interesting thing is, is and I love that song, uh, as it's titled Manhattan, and it reminds me of Bays, of course, but also uh, uh, the, Megan, uh, his mother, moved to New York and with him for, for a few years. And it, I, I think it's worth bringing up because this was one of those moments where I really initially I really resisted this. And this has been a big and instructive lesson for me is this idea that we all play into resisting what is. And there was a point in time at which, quite honestly, Quentin Baxter was great. He was, he was he's such a good friend that he told me something that I didn't want to hear. And he basically just told me to grow up. You know, he's like, this isn't about you. This is about your son. So just, you know, make it happen. And, and at some point I just let go and I just threw up the white flag and said, great, you're going to New York, Baze is going with you. I'm going to make this work for him, and I'm going to make this work for me. And again, as soon as I let go and tossed up the white flag, New York was awesome. You know, you know it was it's really it's, awesome. It's interesting because, you know, you look back on the story of life, and you that sounds like it didn't come with a lot of friction. I remember the conversations during that period at Hope and Union. Remember the coffee shop? We oh, used there to was friction. To, oh, there was so much friction. Rightfully so. I yeah. mean, the thought of... I mean, I went and talked to a lawyer. I was going to try and fight this, right. you know, legally. Right. And, and luckily, I, I, I got a really great lawyer who, who just talked to me like a counselor. Right. You know, the rarity. Right. <laughs> and he encouraged me not to fight it. Just, 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 and, and, and luckily I, well, I, what are you, what are you going to win if you win? There was no win. There was no win. Absolutely. Right. Either I, either I, either I, either I win and, and, and she doesn't go to New York and she's angry at me because she's in love with somebody who she's now married to and it's beautiful. Right. Uh, uh, and, and that would have sucked. Or I lose and she moves to New York and hates me for trying to fight it. It was like, there was no win. And it was so obvious at one point. I was like, wow, okay, this is just like, dude, let it go, man. And, and, and you it, know, just do it. It reminds me of that time because you had then finally gotten yourself to, well, I'll just spend time in New York. That'd be good right. for my work. It'd be good for me creatively, stimulating. Yeah. And, and so you're up in New York, you, you're looking for an apartment, you find an apartment and, you know, at, at, just at the literal moment that you've settled into this is my new reality, you get a call from Megan, Bezos' mom, and she says, uh, we're moving to Charleston. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember right. that phone call. And I was like, of course that right, would right, happen. Right, right, right. It was a real long shot, too. And I didn't think it was possible. And I was really figuring out ways to move to New York, like permanently. But, but another sort of less, big lesson. Like, yeah. you know, once you had gotten comfortable with something, right. it, it moved in the complete different direction, right. which happened to be a wonderful direction. Yeah, again. Yeah, right. yeah, definitely, definitely. It reminds me, though, of like, that process of going up there, like, I find it, I love Deepak Chopra, and he talks about uh, paying attention to moments of synchronicity, because it, it, it's an indication that you're probably heading in, in the right direction. And by right direction, I think I, I'm referring to basically in harmony with the way life is moving. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in New York, bef but just when Megan had moved up there, and having two different people who didn't know each other say, if you're going to come up here, you should, you should go look, check out Garrison. And then I have coffee with Jared, and we're having a conversation, and I mention this to him just casually, and he says, Garrison, that's really strange. Duncan has a place in Garrison. And that ended up 
with me staying at Duncan's place in Garrison. He's like, I think Duncan would probably let you stay there. And, and it ended up being fantastic. And then Duncan ends up producing music for my art show, and we've become good friends. And just he, really, he, he just had an opening last night. Uh, American Psycho. He, yeah, he, he scored it and wrote the lyrics uh, for American Psycho. Yeah, yeah, really happy for him. He's incredibly yeah. talented. Creative genius. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit. Uh, you're getting in incredible uh, shape on the bike. Um, and Stuart, you know, subsequent a little bit later... Uh, calls you up, calls the mates up and says, uh, 50th birthday, we're, we're cycling from what was originally London to Monte Carlo, <laughs> which was changed to Geneva to Nice. Yes. Uh, yeah. Very yeah. 007-like right. figure right. for, right. for a Brit. But um, talk to us about that experience. It was incredible. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it was really amazing on so many levels you know Stu decides to do this and then not too long before uh, maybe three months out he's snowboarding and he t completely tears his Achilles tendon and he calls us all up and he's like guys I just tore my Achilles I know we've all bought plane tickets and there's a backstory of like me committing to this and you know financially being uncertain about it and then just throwing my hat in the ring and saying like I'm doing it um, and so he tears his Achilles, calls us up, and says, "You, you know, you you should all just go, and 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 you know, or um, um, you know, we can change our plane tickets and maybe wait for me to rehab, but it's going to be a while." And of course, all of us were like, "Are you kidding me? This is your fiftieth birthday. Like, we're going to go without you? No way!" First of all, and second of all, you just we're not going to change our tickets either. You're going to get healthy, and you're going to go at the time we just said we were going to go because you can do it. And and he he was like, "Yeah, okay." I'm going to do that. I'm going to go on the most intensive rehab session ever and do everything and then some that any physical therapist tells me I need to do. And in three months, Stu was riding up Telegraph Galibier, which is like what's called a Category 1 and then an HC climb, which in, in Tour de France climbing, Category 1 is the difficult, most difficult climb you could possibly imagine. It's the longest and steepest climb you can do. HC, as the French people love, is above that, which means without category, hors catégorie, which is like, you know, you know, just like some epically crazy, evil, steep, winding thing. And Stu felt great, bouncing, dancing on the pedals, you know, it was, it was absolutely amazing. So we were all just like, just so happy for our best friend, there's four of us there, that he was able to pull this off. And of course, Stu was so stoked. And then we just ended up in this like magical slipstream of Everything went so well, so smoothly, and we did this all on our own. We didn't get some guide company or anything else. We never booked a room except for the final night, you know, in Menton, near, near Nice. And everything worked out. I mean, we would roll into a French town, a little village in the middle of the Alps, and without, we got used to it. Every single French village, the first person we would run into, they, they would say, oh, there's no vacancy here. You, there's no restaurant open. There's no pub. You might as well keep on riding. And then we would look at each other and laugh and go, all right, there's that guy. Now let's go find our place. And then we would go find a place. And it would be awesome. Like the coolest people, the best restaurant. And they would, at the end of dinner, they would feed us this little aperitif that was made from the flowers on the mountainside, you know, up in the Alps there. And each one had their own variety of that little after dinner drink. And it was just in really incredible. Uh, yeah. I remember talking to you guys when you got back from that trip and it was like a spiritual, magical sort of experience. And I, and I remember trying to like, we were having conversations about what you could draw out of that. Like why, what were the oh, ingredients right. that sort of created that environment? And one of them was, um, 
putting something out on the horizon that had a, a, a definitive time frame to it. It wasn't open-ended. It was in September, we're going to the Alps. Um, the, everybody had to get their own preparation. You know, so you you only got out of it yeah. what you put into it because you had to be physically I think the, in great and, shape and, and to and get the there. And the key right? to that thing, oh, definitely, it, it's it's you know very challenging, right? Physically, um, the key is like short timeline with a with a with a goal that that at least in this scenario, a goal that feels almost Un- unattainable, unattainable, right? And 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 that locks in a sense of discipline and inspiration and energy that you didn't think you had. Right. And and suddenly, you know, I was there and doing it and, and, and riding this 1985, you know, really heavy Lotus steel frame bike up up these incredibly steep climbs and, and, and doing it. And it was really, yeah, fantastic. So paint the picture uh, of your climb up, uh, what is it? Oh, the Col- Col Désert. Col Désert. Col Désert. Right. We were, we were riding up Col Désert. And there's a point at which there's a ski resort. So a lot of the Alps, of course, is great ski country. Um, but it, we're, we, we hit the window just right, just after the sort of summer van and travelers were done. And just before the snow started to kick in and ski season kicked off. So we were, uh, all of these towns were very desolate and pretty empty. There were places open, but we were oftentimes the only people around. So there was this sense of being in uncharted territory, of being in, uh, quite honestly, as we left Val d'Isere, which was the last ski town just before Col d'Isere, we, I felt like I was riding off into a Martian landscape. The colors, um, the forbidding nature of the landscape, sort of everything about it just had this feel that um, I felt almost completely insignificant and so teeny and so small and, and yet simultaneously infinitely large and wide. What it does is it sort of drops drops ordinary mind right and we live in ordinary mind and when you can drop out of that state it's 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 you can access a different state and even just a taste of that different state even if it's aided by some other thing whether it's a technique whether it's a drug whether it's a a a a moment that, that that pulls you out of sometimes just a sunrise can be enough to pop you out of your ordinary mind state and into a deeper understanding of of reality yeah and and so this was a this was a moment where all of these things come com, like collided, and of course like I, like you mentioned I'm in this great physical shape and I'm going up this mountain with these other three three great guys and suddenly I start slowing down because I, I really thought I was going to pass out, and so I slowed down and I thought I'm going to put on some music because I need something just to keep me going and I'm a little concerned because I don't want to pass out in the middle of nowhere with my buddies up ahead of me. And so I went to put on, I think I went to put on the Arctic Monkeys to give me a little extra incentive. And accidentally, Iron and Wine came on, our endless numbered days. And it was, you know, it starts off with that dun, 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 dun. And it was just like the beat of the universe. It was perfect. And I thought, all right, I'm going to put this whole album on. And, and that was when really everything clicked in a way that, that where I had this glimpse, this taste of something uh, uh, deeper than an experience I've had previously and it, and it connected in a way that never left well I love the way when you came back and talked about that particular experience and you're sharing that story with me you talked about your um, your new appreciation and understanding of time and you know time's such a f- fascinating 
idea, yeah, you know, yes. um, and and we have such a linear view of time. Um, but uh, share with uh, our audience that story uh, of of how you came to look at time because it just changed it dramatically for me. Yeah, I mean, I suppose for me, I had always looked at time in this way where there was this the the where the history or, or or the past was this really long line stretching out behind me for a really long period of time and then the future was a similar thing where this really long line of potential things that could unfold in front of me and the moment now the present moment was this very thin slice in be- sandwiched in between those two things and at that moment in the alps uh the horizontal line collapsed and so there was no long line of the past, no long line of the future. There was only one massive, infinitely wide line of the present. And, and that's really all there is. That's all we have. And we are a sum total of our past. So the past is in the present. And what we are doing right now is who we are becoming. So the future is right now as well. It's always past, present, future is always now. And it just all collapsed. And it's just a really liberating way of, of, of looking at it. It's a great, it's a great uh, metaphor. I mean, when you, when you describe it that way, and I think about a string, and the, you know, I mean, it yeah. does. The present just gets, like you said, it's, it's like a, a a tiny little piece of the string sandwiched in with right. these very long lines, and and uh, it's, I, I love that description. Um, you know, Brad Van Lu talked a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, just sort of mm. d- different paths, different ways into that... Um, the taste of the now. The t- right, yeah. the very way, great way to say it, the taste of the now. Whether it's, on the me- whether it's on the mat in meditation, whether it's through yoga, whether it's on a, on a, a bike. bike in the Alps. Um, yeah, we get it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Uh, Ajashanti refers to this as the gap. And it's the, it's, it's the gap in between uh, 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 the mind wanting to know when you kind of let go where things open up. And, and I think it's really, really important to, to, to pay attention to those gaps. And the gaps can, like that, that state of mind can be accessed through, through meditation. And so that's a very intentional way of, of, of trying to find what it feels like to be in that state of consciousness. And cycling for me has always been something that did that for me. You know, talk about opening up time, shifting, uh, moving different directions. You come back from the Alps. And I think that... Um, for me, at least, is one of your friends. I've spent a lot of time with you over the past decade. Um, it's been good, man. It has been good. <laughs> and I'll think of our first introduction. Oh, man. I think I won that wrestling match. But um, <laughs> you, I, I think there's a pivot or a shift um, towards sort of activism um, and sort of making, not just through your visual work, but through your voice, um, just just letting it be heard a little bit louder. Uh, talk about um, maybe you could talk a little bit about Martin Luther King and mm. uh, his, your one of your favorite quotes about. Um, Do you want me to read that one? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Justice, I think, is it about? Uh, well, it's about leadership, really. Yeah. Um, uh, this was something that that Reverend Rivers read. Uh, Martin Luther King. I did it again. <laughs> no, I said Rivers this time. So yeah, Reverend Rivers read this with Jeremy Rutledge at Circular Congregation and, and on Martin Luther King Day uh, years ago. He said, uh, sooner or later you must make decisions based on conscience, not what is political or expedient or convenient, but you must make a decision based on what is right. 
True leadership is not a searching for consensus. The best leaders have molded consensus because when you seek consensus, you have to sooner or later accept the compromise of what's right. Leadership at its best will not do what is popular until it becomes right. They will do what is right until it becomes popular. I love that quote. And I'm going to, you know, utilize another quote, Vicky Matsis. Um, oh, yeah. From who, Gandhi. From Gandhi. And, she, and I'm going to add to it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to take that liberty to add to a Gandhi <laughs> quote. His quote was, uh, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. And I, I'd add, for you, happiness is what, when what you think, what you create, mm. what you do and now what you say are in harmony. There seems to be the added dimension of uh, this work that you're doing, whether it's with Charleston Moves, whether it's with Project 2041 in the Antarctic. Mm. Um, you seem to be finding a little bit of a, a bigger voice in that arena. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think... I think I was... Um, Tim it, De Christopher is another influential figure in that sort of Tim move, Tim De Christopher was a big inspiration for me in that way and that quote from Gandhi really kind of sums it up where where you know I felt like um, I think it's easy to, to, to lean into to apathy with with you know seven billion people on the planet and counting or whatever the number is and, and feeling like our voices don't really make a difference and and also get just sort of maybe unconsciously just just trapped in the rut of just getting things done and figuring out a way to get by day to day just to pay the bills it's, it's, it's a, I think, a completely understandable place to be. But at the same time, I feel like once I, I had this sense at one point where I felt like I really could make a difference and that it was worthwhile to do so because it's part of a legacy. I have a, I have a son and I have friends and I have family and, and there are many people coming after me. And so why not? Why not do something where if I feel like I can make... Uh, make the world uh, maybe uh, safer, uh, healthier, or um, in any way that, that feels like an engagement with the process rather than being disconnected, just really actively being. It's so easy, I think, to just gripe about things and think somebody else is going to fix it. And I, you know, I think we all could, can, can easily fall into that. And so at some point, and for me, I just decided, well, no more griping. You know, if there's something that I feel strongly about, I'm going to get involved. That's the only way I can actually really gripe about it. Because otherwise, somebody can just say, well, do something about it. <laughs> I, I'm curious. It goes back to my initial sort of introduction and, and the power that you've demonstrated. And I think the beauty of humanity is our ability to change the narrative of our story that, mm. that, that lies within our possibilities every day, right? And so when I think about your narrative and how meaningfully it's been shifted via your transformation and you know your sort of that call to adventure um if you were to dare to look forward yeah. 15 to 20 years um and i know you're not you're not focused on an outcome of who you think that will be because it's going to change through the process so with that being said yeah is there is there any image or idea of what john duckworth and the narrative that what might that well, there's look like? a lot of uh, uh, not a whole lot comes up immediately. Yeah, quite honestly, and and there are little snippets of things. Um, uh, there's 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 uh, the sense of, of relationship. Uh, I started dating somebody recently, and it's really wonderful. And that's that's I think that we find out a whole lot about ourselves in relationship, and that's that's really nice. Um, 
and I think important. Uh, uh, beyond that, the freedom of not knowing is, an, is a space that I'm really excited about. And, and, and that to me is this sort of liberating space of, of not attaching any expectations of where I might be. It is a bit scary, definitely, but it also is a liberating thing. It takes the weight away of me uh, trying to latch on to, like the old me, the, 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 the sort of routine and the conditioning that I, was, that I formerly would fall into. And, and trying to just erode those grooves and be open to saying, man, uh, what if? Yeah, and, and, and I guess my curiosity is, you know, we talked about uh, sort of uh, with Brad Van Lu, sort of the need to have a horizon uh-huh. uh, out there and, and yet to be able to tact and adjust to the prevailing winds, which might shift minute by minute, literally. And so you've moved from only looking at the horizon not not you know literally sure. but um to where you're really tacting at this point and and i'm so it really it's malleable both, right but yeah. yeah but i mean i guess to be more direct there's definitely a sense that in an abstract way what i enjoy doing creatively can be enmeshed with with uh uh the voice in me that wants to find a way to contribute to the world that i live in and, and there's definitely a sense that we as humans have, uh, have potentially lost track of our connection to, our intimate connection to the planet that we live on and that we're not separate from it. We're, we're really intricately linked to it and there's no need to save it. We're actually just destroying ourselves potentially. And, and, and it's, it's actually, that's, so that's something that I feel like my creative process could be combined with that voice I suppose the activist side that you're mentioning in a way that could be informative rather than sort of lecturing at people about their habits and behaviors. I find that sometimes in a very, there's a very abstract presentation of a concept that can land a lot deeper because it's not lecturing or didactic in its presentation. It, how that formulates, I really don't right. know, but that's kind of the space, the space that I'm, that I'm occupying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've had a, uh, a wonderful 10-year ride thus far, and uh, yeah. I, I know we don't know where the next 20 goes. I hope we get to share it together. And uh, I, I know I enjoyed sharing a bit of uh, our audience's time and hour, and, uh, you know, uh, thanks for being with us. Absolutely, man. It's pretty cool that the, that the not-knowing space that I entered into after my exhibition resulted in me being really wide open to the point of, of you and I end up doing this doing this show because that really I think was born out of that headspace for me it was for sure yeah and for me being a student of you doing you know <laughs> I mean me wanting to have an end result and an outcome and, and sort of just getting really comfortable with just no oh, let's just do it yeah. um, you know yeah. and, and see what what happens it's been a fun ride <laughs> yeah it's been a great ride you know um, we're gonna we're gonna exit with uh, a song from the album uh you're, you're listening to On Your Cycle, Up a Lunar Landscape yes. in the Swiss Alps. Iron and Wine. Iron and Wine, uh, On Your Wings. That's great. Cheers.
Iron and wine. Uh, if you can picture yourself up in the Alps on a bike, what a what a beautiful image! This is Alexopolis, uh, call to adventure on Ohm Radio. I have with me Katie Kinwall, who's had the distinct pleasure of working with John for gosh, what the last couple of years? Two years. Yeah. Um, I thought uh, a quote I wanted to read um, from Suzuki Roshi. Uh, is one of John's favorite quotes, and I, I think it so aptly describes sort of his view on his current state, which is, you are perfect exactly as you are, and there is room for improvement. Hmm. That sort of seems to epitomize the way John views things, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. And especially um, what he mentioned earlier, uh, he said we should think of ourselves as a work of art, a work of art that is never finished which I can totally see John doing all the time from working at home to the way he 
decorates himself with really interesting people. So I think it totally correlates with that idea. He's he's a uh, dichotomy is not the right word. Language sometimes failed. He's just he's uh, he's a lot of different. Uh, he brings together a, a potpourri of really different personalities and uh, disciplines, uh, and I think the complexity of John. Um, is what it makes his personality so beautiful, you know? Yeah, and, and the fact that he invites people to come along in those journeys with him, it brings these beautiful, interesting people together. I mean, I've benefited from meeting yourself and Thomas and, um, you know, this whole podcast idea, and it's just so amazing how he, his ideas spread among all of us. Yeah. He's, um, he's he, for those who know him, he's incredibly disciplined, right? Yes. I mean, he's incredibly committed um he's very intentioned um and he does take a a fine brush to every object in his world whether it's himself uh or organizations that he's working with or art that he's creating uh and just examine it and i examine uh things uh honestly is i think one of his most beautiful qualities he, uh, it was another quote that Ajashanti, who is who he just went on a week-long meditation with, mm-hmm. silent meditation, um, uh, and it also seems to describe John's sort of state of being, uh, and the quote says, you will know what you need to know when you need to know it. And sometimes what you need to know is that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a scary place for, I think, just our culture to exist in that space. It's not, it's not the normal person you meet that feels so comfortable in that ambiguity. Yeah, and he relishes in it really all the time. He's, he's more comfortable when he doesn't know these things and doesn't know about certain people. It's like the ambiguity and the vulnerability of all of that, he really grows in it. Whereas some people feel uncomfortable, that's where he grows. Yeah. That's admirable. Yeah. It really is. Well, I've been uh, uh, just honored to have spent a decade, you know, uh, in, in the car on that journey with him, and it's uh, it's been an interesting, exciting ride. This show has been a has been a product of that relationship, you know, um, and we're looking forward to seeing where that evolves. Uh, our own sort of co call to adventure. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you to our audience for uh, spending another hour with us, getting a deeper uh, understanding of uh, our co pilot on the show, John Duckworth, and uh, to Katie and to Thomas uh, for making it all happen because it can't happen without you. Um, Till next time. Cheers. Cheers. And remember, the road that is distinctly your own has never been traversed. Celebrate the path that is your call to adventure. This show is brought to you by Objectivity Squared Wealth Management, helping families strategize, execute, monitor, and communicate their financial decisions. Learn more at objectivitysquared.com.